welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a master's degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Dr. Doug McDonald to the show. Dr. McDonald is a professor of psychology at the University of North Dakota and a licensed psychologist. The Department of Psychology awards either a Master of Arts or a Master of Science in Forensic Psychology. The department also offers two doctorate programs, one in clinical psychology, which is fully accredited by the APA, and another in general experimental psychology. Dr. McDonald is the director for Indians into Psychology Doctoral Education Program, as well as the American Indians into Psychology Program. His areas of focus include Native American assessment and treatment issues within psychology, research, and graduate training. Dr. McDonald, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me, Brad. I'm Petu Washdeelo. It's a good day. That is great. I, I tried to go out and find some words that I could speak, but honestly, some of them are hard to pronounce. And um, <laughs> I'm glad I had, a, I had a feeling that you were going to open up with something like that, because on our emails going back and forth, it was nice to see some of that uh, in the emails as well. So uh, I appreciate you opening up that way. Um, I see that you're busy. And as we were talking, the reason that I reached out to you for our audience is I started to look at some programs and resources that are available for American Indians, Native Americans, and even Alaskans. And uh, I came across the IHS website, which is the Indian Health Service website. And then, of course, I came into and learned more about the American Indians into psychology program. So we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to also talk about that second program uh, that you also are in charge of at UND. But before we do that, uh, for our audience, just tell us a little bit more about yourself. Well, I'm the product of uh, uh, mixed race and heritage in that uh, my father, Art McDonald, is from Pine Ridge, South Dakota, the Oglala Lakota tribe. My mom being a pure German uh, immigrant usurpers of Bennett County, South Dakota, that they kind of took over somehow that happens. Uh, Star-crossed lovers and uh, so grew up in kind of both worlds uh, uh, with the white side of my family and the, the Lakota side of my family and grew up in actually on uh, the Northern Cheyenne Reservation in Lame Deer, Montana, southeastern part of Montana. And um, uh, I've been a professor here at UND for going on 30 years. Um, I'm an avid hunter, fisherman, um, uh, veteran, and uh, live on a small ranch northwest of Grand Forks with my beautiful wife, Cher, uh, and 11 cats, two horses, and a dog. <laughs> That's a lot to take care of. Um, uh, one thing that I did notice when I was researching you is, you know, we're going to, what I like to do during these uh, interviews is kind of go chronologically, um, you know, your experiences in education, how you got into psychology, and then what led you to where you are right now. So with that in mind, tell us a little bit more about your undergraduate experiences. And at what point did you get into or became interested or become interested in psychology? <laughs> well, I uh, 
became interested in psychology. Well, first of all, I went to USD, University of South Dakota, on a track and field scholarship. I had been on the Navy track team, and uh, USD offered me a scholarship. And uh, plus, my, my father was doing some kind of temporary work um, in the psychology department there at USD at the time. And so I, <laughs> I, had, a, I had a place to crash also. So um, but it, so my father, uh, having a background, obviously in psychology, but, but even more so than that, I, I was lucky to find something that a lot of people don't, unfortunately. And that is an incredible mentor, Dr. Tom Jackson, who was there at the time, who really, you know, I was kind of a, rough-edged veteran uh, coming out of the submarine force from the Cold War, and uh, he really took me under his wing, and he he was just such a cool dude that uh, I, it was really that simple as far as what got me to USD and then what got me into the field is is uh, he showed me what what is possible in the field of clinical psychology. And when I married that backwards to a lot of the problems and difficulties that I saw growing up on the reservation, um, things just started to click. And I did notice, and I have uh, a few friends that are in different nations. Uh, I, I'm up in Minnesota, for those of you who, who may not know that. And so we have uh, a, a bunch of different nations um, that um, uh, my friends are into, and it's it's interesting to me, uh, Doug, that uh, um, even the different nations have their different dialect and and language as well. And so I was I was going to ask you about this a little bit later on, but when I looked at the, I'm going to mispronounce this, so forgive me, Oglala Lakota Nation, is that right? It's pretty good. Okay, all right. So I, I looked at that and I looked at the history and it's one of the uh, longest running nations, uh, one of the original in that area. Uh, and they went through a lot of turmoil, a lot of change, things have settled down. Um, and then during my research, when I was looking into how many um, American Indians are in the psychology field, uh, I, I found that we're really un underrepresented, and I have a feeling that that's part of your focus uh, with the programs. And so tell us a little bit more about, you know, we talked about your undergraduate studies, how you got into psychology. Now tell us a little bit more about what turned you on about looking at more of the American Indians and Native Americans within psychology. Well, I can, I can easily look back and, and recall as, as all of my friends and, and relatives growing up on the reservation, seeing, citing a psychologist on most of our reservations in the, the 70s, uh, 60s and 70s would have been about as rare as seeing maybe Amelia Earhart and Bigfoot riding on the back of the Loch Ness Monster going down the road. It, it, was, uh, it, it was something that you just didn't see. And, and at the same time, the, the 60s and 70s were a time of great, uh, certainly national and, and even local upheaval in our country, certainly similar that we're going through now. And uh, a lot of our reservations during that time were, were, were in, in the throes of some kind of evolutions as well. If you look what happened at Pine Ridge in the 70s and, and stuff. And, but but beyond that, there were the, the, the 
psychopathology and the mental health issues and problems and substance abuse and domestic violence were were, were being untreated because of the fact that there were no mental health professionals, a few social workers here and there, perhaps uh, a psychiatrist that might come around once a month for the more seriously uh, afflicted uh, mental illnesses that required medication. But short of that, there was no assessment. There was no therapy going on in our world growing up. And uh, so clearly and obviously the need was there and the need is still there. Thank you for that. That gives me even more. I, I do. I, I have three screens in front of me, so I, I'm looking around and looking at all of the uh, research that I did in preparation for this. And you covered some of the stuff that I was actually going to ask. So thank you um, for covering that. Most of the time when uh, our audience members uh, listen to our podcast or watch our podcast, they, they're looking for some advice from our guests. And so at this point, I want to ask you, what advice would you give to those who are in their undergraduate or even in their master's and, and seeking to continue their education in a graduate you know, uh, uh, program as well, uh, receiving their doctorate? What kind of general advice would you give to those who are interested in getting into the psychology field? Sure. Um, and and th- th- this cuts across all ethnic uh, uh, classes and, and uh, categories by all means. So it's just as true for Native students as it is for uh, African-American majority culture. And that is as early as possible. Now, certainly when you're a freshman undergraduate, you're finding your feet, you're f- learning where all the buildings are and getting acclimated. Uh, but as soon as you kind of start to feel settled in and as soon as you are, if if you really do believe that your future is in professional psychology, and I'll speak specifically to uh, clinical psychology or, or counseling psychology, um, you need to get serious about it. And I mean, by your sophomore year, you need to get serious about it. What does that mean? You need to be looking at putting together a, 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 a curriculum portfolio, if you will, that's going to lend itself to being a professional psychologist, which might which might include a little bit more biology, a, a little bit more, uh, a, a little bit further down the line, um, neuro, uh, neurobiology and chemistry, and certainly all of the psychology courses that are available. So you want to take the kinds of classes that are going to make you be uh, competitive to graduate programs when they look at it, because as I'm sure you mentioned a lot, uh, Brad, in, in this podcast, getting into an APA-accredited clinical training program is exceedingly difficult. Uh, we're, we're in the process right now. We have, in the frozen north country of North Dakota, we have well over 100 applicants for about six or seven spots. So always got to have that in mind. It's not. It doesn't matter if it's what you want to do. Uh, it's you need to build it and you need to make it. You need you need to start early. So put together the, the coursework that that is going to get you there. But even more importantly than than that, um, and that's vitally important. You need to get involved in research. You you need to find a mentor that is very active in in doing research. That you can be a part of their team. You can learn the research pro- process and get your name on publications and presentations, that that is academic coin, if you will, 
it's certainly true for brand new assistant professors in this pub in the publish and publish or perish kind of world of academia but it's also true for undergrads to get on a good research team that's very productive and hopefully doing something that you're interested in and um uh that's the kind of of, of portfolio that is going to make you very very competitive when it comes time to apply to grad school. And, and I think a big part of that is what I mentioned earlier. Find a mentor and, and don't settle on the first person that you walk into their office and say, hey, I'd really like to work with you. Will you take me? Will you take me? Um, maybe they take you, but they're not the right person. You, you want to find somebody that's a real fit, that can be productive, that can help you, that can advise you, um, and can get you where you, you really want to go. So, and that's on you. That's not on the system. That's not on the world or anybody else. That's on you uh, to, to, to find a good advisor and a good mentor. And so one of the good questions to ask is maybe things like, so how many folks have you mentored that have gone on to, you know, a PhD program? And if they don't have hard numbers for you, then maybe you might need to look elsewhere. Very good advice. Thank you. I know that on uh, my previous two uh, interviews, uh, each of them uh, talked about finding that fit that you referred to as well. And it's important to find that fit because if you're interested in a certain area of psychology, especially clinical and then a certain sub area, find somebody that can help you understand that and then guide you. So I know that a lot of uh, students have not only an advisor, just a general advisor to help with that curriculum building and, and development, but also an advisor in their specific area that they're interested in as well. So surround yourself with people that are A, well-known in the field, and B, that are more willing to, to help you. And very good advice on asking them, well, how many have you advised and gone on to you know, uh, their, their doctorate or received their doctorate or, or gone into private practice or you know those type of questions? So very, very good advice. I appreciate that. Uh, you mentioned about a couple areas. Um, one is your graduate program. Obviously, you you went to USD. How did you decide on going to USD? Was it uh, that one person that uh, you you eventually talked to and and really bonded with, or what were some of the preliminary requirements in your own mind for Hey, I can go to any one of these schools. How did you actually decide on going to USD? Uh. Probably six of one and half a dozen of the other combination of I was already there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I didn't really see the need to move if mm -hmm. they would take me, and they took me. Uh, they, they made me an offer, and it gave me the chance to work with, like I say, Dr. Jackson, my mentor, and uh, I didn't really want to go anywhere else. So, I mean, that's not always the best answer to your question as far as what to look for in, in a graduate program, but, you know, uh, the other thing, Brad, is that was 35 years ago, and things have changed a lot since then. Uh, you know, back in those days, it, it, it we obviously, obviously didn't have the internet, weren't didn't have as many resources and and opportunities as there are now to to really kind of look around, shop around, and and uh, I was there, <laughs> and uh, Dr. Jackson was there, and he said, "Come on aboard," and I said, "Okay." 
There you go. Simple answer. Everybody's experience is different. So uh, I appreciate you sharing that. Earlier, you mentioned about the APA and how difficult it is. And I did notice uh, when I was looking at your program that uh, the clinical psychology received accreditation under the new revised standards of APA. And actually, it was one of the first to receive the APA stamp of approval for the next 10 years under those new standards. Can you speak a little bit more about that process and what that means to you, UND, and the program? Oh, sure. Well, APA accreditation when it comes to professional psychology training in uh, clinical and counseling psych is is everything. Um it, and let me start at kind of the very important terminus and work backwards. If you think about what it takes to to enter the guild and become a psychologist in this country, in most cases and in all states, you need to get licensed, right? In order in your state to become a quote unquote psychologist. Well, most states are not going to even consider you for licensure if you did not go to an APA accredited training program uh, and internship. I know it's possible there's equivalency here and there, but less and less and less as time moves on. So that's important if you really want to be ultimately at, at, at the end of it all a psychologist. Well, at the beginning, then you need to go to an APA accredited program. So that that's the most important aspect of a training program. It, it certainly the training model, if it fits with you here at UND, we espouse a scientist practitioner kind of typical Boulder model. And, um, uh, but, but first it, it doesn't really matter what your model is. If you're not accredited, I don't know what you're training people to do. You hear sob stories, horror stories all the time about people that went through a non-accredited program only to find that, similar to Trump University, they spent a hell of a lot of money and got promised a lot of uh, different things. And in the end, they're not able to get licensed. And it uh, that, that money's gone. And that time and those years are gone. So kind of like I said with finding a mentor – you need to find a program that you're absolutely sure is accredited and not just accredited now, but accredited for uh, it, it has a good track record uh, of being accredited, which will speak to their ability to stay accredited. But yeah, we were, we were, it, I'm not going to say lucky. We certainly deserved it. Um, we were in the first cohort of, of uh, programs that, that were granted 10 years and uh, APA has a big job. I was on the Board of Educational Affairs that that oversees the Committee on Accreditation or the Council on Accreditation, and they 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 have a big job when it comes to accrediting, accrediting uh, and site visiting and providing that kind of oversight for training programs. It's it's what controls the quality of folks that move through and get trained and then ultimately wind up in our field. Big responsibility on their part. Yep, yep, and and uh, I also noticed uh, some of your uh, uh, background. You mentioned APA. You were past regional president of the APA's Division Forty Five. And those of you who don't know what Division Forty Five is, it's the Society for the Psychological Study of Culture, Ethnicity, and Race. So tell us a little bit more about how you got involved in that uh, division 
and share some experiences while you were serving there. And while you're doing that, I'm going to share uh, the screen and so everybody can kind of see what that division is about. So tell us a little bit more about how you got involved and, and your experiences. You bet. Well, most folks know there's, uh, I think we're approaching 60 different divisions within APA now. And uh, I got involved with Division 45, uh, luckily, as a, as a sort of a, a byproduct of my being president of the Society of Indian Psychologists. And I would encourage everyone to go to the website for the Society of Indian Psychologists and kind of see what we're all about. Uh, SIP as we has been around for for many years uh since the late 60s when all, all four of the ethnic minority psych associations were developed and so i was honored to be president of sip uh early in my career and what a one thing apa did at the time which was really cool was they would bring together the presidents of the four ethnic minority psych associations. So there's SIP, uh, ABCI Association of Black Psychologists, and um, uh, uh, Asian American and Latino, uh, the four different uh, societies. They would bring together the four presidents as well as the president of Division 45 to, to DC. We'd meet twice a year, and once in DC, when APA was having their Council of Representatives meeting, uh, and then once we would meet once at, during the APA convention. And I just happened to luck into becoming friends. And, and again, I, I, I'm the luckiest person in the world, Brad. I've been taken <laughs> under the wing of some of the most influential and incredible people in diversity psychology. Dick Swin at the time was running for APA president. and he sat in on some of the, the, these council meetings, got to know Dick, and um, uh, it, uh, got, started getting associated with Division 45, met the president of Division 45 at the time, did some ceremonies for them to open uh, their, their meetings at the APA convention, which was a great honor. Even opened, uh, opened the APA convention twice, as a matter of fact. Um, and then ran for president. I, I was secretary of Division 45 and then uh, ran and, and was president of Division 45, which is one of the uh, great honors of my life. And, and I, I would also put in a plug for Division 45. Anybody that's interested in race, culture, and ethnicity, as far as that aspect of diversity, you should check out Division 45 because that's what we're all about. A lot of resources on there when I was looking into it. Yeah. Uh, a lot of updated news. They uh, update their website a lot. Sometimes the divisions in, in other um, categories aren't updated as frequently, but this one definitely, uh, I saw some current stuff even from January of this year as well. So, um, yeah, I, I, congratulations. That must have been a, a great experience, and that kind of lends itself toward and reflects um, your current passion, if I, if I can say that, speaking for you. Uh, looking at the Inside E and um, the other programs. Before I get into that, though, I did want to note, um, looking at your, your history and your past, it seems like you're somewhat following the footsteps of your father, Arthur McDonald, who was also one of the first Native Americans to receive a doctoral degree in experimental psychology. Tell us a little bit more about your father and how uh, he became passionate in, in that uh, area as well. 
You know, it's funny, Brad. I never really thought of it this way until you kind of phrased the, the, the situation that way. But my dad kind of fell into the same boat in the sense that he was a veteran of the Korean War. He was a combat vet uh, in Korea, started college on a football scholarship and uh, met up with his men- a mentor in the psychology department who really just took him under his wing and in experimental psychology. And uh, that's what hooked my dad into to getting a, a, his PhD. He was the first Native American to get a PhD in experimental psychology at USD. And then obviously I was the first uh, parent child combination when I got mine in clinical psychology. So I, it, it, to, in, it, to some extent I've followed in his footsteps, uh, it, but in others, it was really Dr. Jackson who was my mentor in clinical psychology, but certainly in the old, larger picture of it, it was definitely my dad. Um, I was, you know, how strange and odd and, special and unique for me to grow up on the reservation. Um, my dad took us to the Northern Cheyenne reservation because he had a, a grant uh, uh, back in the day. It was NIH uh, and SAMHSA and them came along later, but uh, to train, he had a grant for a program to train paraprofessionals on the reservation through Montana state university where he was, chair of psychology for a couple of years there we moved back to the res um and he that's how we got to northern cheyenne and so i had a i had that role model for sure someone that had even just gone to college someone that that had a doctorate he was dr mcdonald and um that's something certainly none of my friends and he was the first person in our family on my dad's side, obviously, first person in my family to get a doctorate in anything. And so I was really lucky to have him as a role model for being able to achieve the ultimate, you know, in academic success. So, you know, I kind of had the two. I was very, very lucky to have the two, one of them being my father and then Dr. Jackson. I'm seeing a theme here. You are a lucky person and your family is a lucky, <laughs> but not well, they, only that. they might dispute that when it comes to me, but, uh. <laughs> but not only that, you know, you've, you've had a lot of hard work uh, going into developing the program at UND and that's a good transition to talk about, Hey, you've been at UND for about 29 years. What brought you to UND? <laughs> well, it, it wasn't the first plan. It wasn't plan A. Let's put it that way. I, I kind of had it in my sights that I always wanted to go to the University of Montana. Uh, I, South Dakota, Montana boy through and through. I never thought I'd go to North Dakota. We, we, we made fun of North Dakotans in South Dakota and Montana. <laughs> we didn't really tell ethnic jokes growing up. It was, you know, North Dakotans. Did you hear about the North Dakotan and the, you know, and all that. So that certainly wasn't the plan, but, uh, uh, the truth of the matter is, I as I, when I was on my internship and was interviewing, I interviewed at the University of Montana, and they offered me about $1,000 less than I was really kind of hoping for. And I had been getting offers from these other places to go interview, including UND. And I, <laughs> my first effort at really trying to, to run some leverage, I said, well, 
You know, I think they offered me 32 and I was hoping for 33. That, that tells you how long ago it was. And I said, well, I guess maybe I'll just uh, have to go up to UND and uh, interview up there. And the chair of the department at the time said, well, I guess you got to do what you got to do, Doug. So I said, oh, you just called my bluff. And so <laughs> I, I, there I was off, came up here. And, and when I, as soon as I got here to UND and thankfully to not my dear friend, Jeff Holm, who was in the clinical program at the time, uh, and Mark Raby, who was chair at the time, were, were instrumental in getting me up to interview and helping to start the inside program. And, and as soon as I got on campus, and, and, and everybody's heard of InMed, the Indians in the Medicine program here at UND, and there's a few others as well. But there, I, I got to UND and realized there were already Indians into something programs. There were 22 different Indian related programs here at UND uh, and there still are uh, most of them and a few new ones. And I realized because I was all about starting the inside program, had it in my, in my bag, you know? And so wherever I was going to go, I made that clear that I'm, if you take me, this is what I'm going to do. And UND said, that's what we want you to do. And I realized, well, okay, not only do I have a welcome environment and context, but I don't have to reinvent a bunch of wheels. If I went to any place else, I'd be blazing a trail, and I'm not necessarily having to do that at UND because, again, we have so many American Indian-related programs. So I never looked back. I, like I said, never planned to, to become a North Dakotan, but I certainly am glad that I did. Yes, and I, I did notice, I'm going to share the screen for everybody as well, uh, again, and this is actually uh, focusing. There was a nice, uh, back in December of 2019, there was a nice article talking about the program and, and your role, and uh, if you can see this, this was nice, uh, gave a lot of information on it, and we'll provide this afterwards as well, but it talked about inside, inside D. UND's Indians into Psychology Doctoral Education Program, and some good uh, um, pictures here. Here's you with one. Hey, of I was your, wearing uh, the same shirt. <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna say it looks looks very similar. <laughs> I have more than one, folks. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're you have a PhD student there, uh, and then it gets into how you started the program, what the goals of the program are, and then it actually gets into a little bit more of some of the numbers of how many Indians are, um, you know, in the country versus uh, the percentage who are actually in psychology, let alone uh, receive their PhD or gone into clinical psychology as well. So that kind of brings me up to the next area that I wanted to talk about was, again, I mentioned you're passionate about it, but uh, based on my research, there are only about 150 to 250 native psychologists nationwide. Parts of me want to say, well, how does it feel to be such an, you know, an elite group? However, you know, I don't want to focus on that. I want to focus on look at how many there are and, and few there are compared to the total number of psychologists that are out there. I, I found, given that there are almost 2.2 million American Indians and Alaska Natives eligible for health care uh, from uh, Indian Health Services, it appears, like I mentioned earlier, that this group is under underrepresented. Uh, what are your thoughts, and is that kind of part of the driving force behind these two programs that you're in charge of? 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, that's that's how it all started. Uh, actually, the the seed of the Inside program, as it is today, started with with me uh, in about my second year of graduate school. And like most APA accredited clinical and counseling programs, by the time you get past your first year into your second, third, and on, you usually spend a couple days a week in a clinical practicum or a placement somewhere in the community or in our case, because we're so rural out here, some of our clinical placements at, down at USD and certainly true here at UND are, are miles away, you know, sometimes 100, 150 miles away to find the kind of an experience that you might be interested in. And taking a look at what was available uh, for these placements, I realized there was nothing that I was really interested in. And so I, my father at the time was president of Chief Dull Knife Memorial College in Lame Deer, Montana, where, where we grew up and still have our quarter horse ranch back there. He was the president at the time. And so we worked together to develop a placement, um, a semester-long placement for clin- senior clinical students. Now, I was the first one to do that. And so it all kind of started back then to not just a placement, not just even an internship. How about a whole program that from has a, it's a pipeline, you know, from start to finish works with undergraduates, shoot, works with, with native high school students that are interested and then moves them through the pipeline all the way to their PhD. And so it, that's really the, how all of this got started back then. And so throughout the rest of the course of my time in grad school, it was just a matter of, of thinking through what would that look like? What would it take? What are the resources? What, 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 what are the potential downfalls? Because there were a lot of programs in the, in the 60s and early part of the 70s when there was a lot more uh, money, federal money back in those days, and universities were, were much richer then too, for developing soft money grant-funded programs of different various training interests. And there was a whole slew of Indian-related training programs that were soft money-funded, uh, five-year programs, say, for example, that they bring in bring in an Indian to run the program, and then after five years, the program's gone. And because the university did not you know, pick it up and carry it uh, after the, the, the funding was over with, a lot of that. So obviously it's got to be hardwired into your clinical program and into your psychology department. And luckily UND believed that they offered me a tenure track position. I mean, so I, from the very get go, I, I would, I had the same expectations on me as an assistant professor as everybody else did to get promotion and tenure. And at the same time running the inside program. So it, it, it was a lot of heavy lifting, especially in the early days, but uh, it was certainly well, wor- well worth it. Yeah, and I did see that in that article as well, that um, you from the get-go were telling them this needs to be hard-coded in our program, not just this you know, three- or five-year uh, episode or shot at, at trying to help this, uh, these groups. So uh, I, I did see that, and I, I should let the audience know I read that UND has produced more Native American First Nations PhD clinical psychologists than any other APA-accredited program. 
congratulations. That just shows you all the hard work uh, has, has come to fruition and it's continuing to do that now that you got refunded. I will go ahead and share my screen again because for those of you who don't know much about the uh, American Indians into Psychology program, and I should specify before I do that, uh, you're in charge of two programs. One is the, you're the director for the Indians into Psychology Doctoral Education, which is INSIDE. And then the other one is this Insight program, which is actually through the Indian Health Service. And so I'm going to share my screen. And for me and for the audience, let me know what your thoughts are on how are they? They're similar, but they're also different. Can you tell me kind of the similarities or differences between the Insight and the Insight program? Sure, Brad. Uh, it, it, the InPsych program, uh, Section 217 of uh, originally was the American Indian um, uh, Healthcare Reform Act, is is the larger umbrella program that includes three inside programs. Uh, there's uh, the University of North Dakota is the flagship program that's actually written into the establishing legislation of 1992, the Indian Health. Re- Care Reform Act, which was uh, 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 also then carried over with uh, the Affordable Care Act. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so the the InPsych program is actually run in and within Indian Health Service. And our good friends and relatives at IHS, uh, we work with them to uh, to place graduates of our programs oh at, at Oklahoma State University um, and also at the University of Montana are the other two programs and uh, so in in my role as the director of the first uh, like I say the flagship program here at UND um, is to to ma- maintain the funding and all of the aspects of the program as specified uh, through the grant, uh, which was, again, originally funded in 1995 through Indian Health Service. So we certainly owe it all to IHS for uh, for their support and their continued support. There's been some lean years, and, and I got to say, just like APA uh, Council on Accreditation, IHS, they're chronically underfunded. They never get anywhere near the funding that they need, and they have so much that they're responsible for out in Indian country as far as direct health care and services. And there's been a lot of lean years. There's been government shutdowns, and our leadership, which is carried over, uh, of course, across all these years, is has been solid, and they've supported us, and uh, so we're, we're very thankful to them. Yeah, the other thing that I wanted to mention, would it be fair for me to say and kind of summarize the difference between the two programs is Inside D uh, actually is focused more on the doctoral education, whereas the other one is any graduate education, including master's. Is that a fair assumption based on what I've read? No, well, if we're talking about the same thing, the the InPsych program is, like I say, the larger uh, uh, okay. Section 217 program, of which the three inside programs are a component. Okay. All right. They're all Thank three you. focused. It's entirely focused on uh, doctoral clinical psychology training. 
Thank you for that clarification because sure. I couldn't tell the difference between and I didn't know that one was an umbrella of the other. So right. th thank you for sharing that. I'm just sharing for those who are just listening, uh, UND's College of Arts and Sciences, and they actually have a, a page for the Inside E program. And it talks about their primary goals, what problem areas they address, uh, and then some of the services that are available if you decide to uh, uh, try to take advantage of that program. How many people do you usually accept into the program? And tell us a little bit more about how that works in that selection process. Uh, that's been, let me preface my, my answer by saying there's no way that you could, that, that, you could have a program like this or that a program like this could flourish and certainly to the extent that we have without having the support. Every level up the chain of, of the clinical program, the psychology department, College of Arts and Sciences, university, border regents, all the way up to the very top. And we've had nothing but great support ever since 92 when I first got here and we first got the program established. That's one thing. And to illustrate that point, ever since I got here, the clinical program and the department has allotted two slots per year in every clinical cohort that are dedicated to the inside program. One that I try to fund with program funds from the grant and the other, the department picks up as a GTA. So our target every year is two per year. And that varies. Uh, uh, was, was, there was one year that we took four. We might take one. We might take three. Some years we don't take any if we don't have uh, the clinical program and our other graduate programs all have criteria for consideration and inclusion like like all graduate programs do. And you have some lean years here and there where nobody uh, meets those cutoffs and meets those criteria. Or you have <laughs> even more heartbreaking, <laughs> you, you have several folks that do meet the criteria, but they're stars and they wind up going off somewhere else and you lose them and you wind up getting nothing. Uh, so that's that happens. And but what's great is the department and the clinical program and all of their support have always been there to to say, basically, what do you need? You know, what do we need to do to bring in uh, another? And can we get another? And can we get another? And as long as they're good, solid students, and by that, I mean, not just native, uh, it, it, that, that's, that's great. It's a qualification. But we want students that are interested first and foremost and primarily in getting their PhD and going back to help American Indian people. Maybe their own tribe, maybe, but if not, some other tribe, that they go back into those communities and they're able to, to those communities will reap the benefits of their academic journey here. And hopefully we've trained them right and good. And um, you can't do that with all that kind of support. I did notice uh, if you go to the UND site, and that's uh, um, almost everywhere we see it uh, coming up about this program, Inside E program as well. And so it's not, that tells me, honestly, that uh, it's not only you that's pushing the program, it is on up um, throughout the uh, university uh, uh, academic uh, uh, program as well. And so I am pleased to see that. And uh, you mentioned earlier that there were two others. 
And I should mention Oklahoma State University also received that grant, and then University of Montana, which you mentioned a couple times as well. Um, three great programs. I researched all of them and then reached out to you first because, honestly, I finished my undergraduate degree at uh, UND. I'm not sure if you knew that, but I, I no. finished out there. Yeah, so I know I know about the tundra and I know about uh, <laughs> everything out there. I wasn't out there during the flood, uh, but I did talk to some friends out there that uh, happened. Did, were you guys impacted by that flood? And, and if so, how? Oh, every certainly everybody was. Uh, it, it was... Uh, it, it it was terrible. It was absolutely catastrophic and terrible. And l- like I say, I live northwest of town away from the river, so I was unaffected. My place was fine. And so I came in, to, well, down to Grand Forks. By then, they had moved absolutely everybody out. If you can imagine a, a town, a city of 60-plus of thousand people, everybody was gone because everything was flooded and most everybody just kind of scattered across the country. But for about a week and a half, we had people out at the Grand Forks Air Force Base in a huge hangar out there. And we started out, and so I volunteered uh, because I have done quite a bit of disaster mental health response, not by choice. I just happened to be at the right place. Flight 232 went down in Sioux City while I was in grad school. Um, and so we were the only who we were 30 miles away. We took a, a team down and responded to, to that. Um, and there been a number of things that have happened. And so I volunteered and got designated as the director of the dis- disaster mental health response here after the flood. And, uh, so we had 15,000 people the first night and 8,000, and then it dwindled down finally to kind of more homeless folks or less advantaged folks after about a week and a half. But And then I was one of the first people that, that got in when the the uh, national the state National Guard opened up the barriers and went in to, to all around this town to dead silence. It, it was April, you know, so we didn't have all the birds back and everything yet up here, but you, you, you never realize how loud a town or a city is until it's totally quiet. And I had a, a gas pump and I pumped out a lot of the psych, psych department uh, colleagues had to crawl in a couple windows with this big pump and pumped out their basements for them before they got back. But yeah, it was, and the stench was, was unbelievable. It was, but you know, it, it, there was a great lady that was working with me from the red cross at the time that said, you know what, Doug, as bad as this is, we we're kind of touring around. She said, uh, everything's going to come back better. I said, what are you talking about? Better look at this. And she said, I know, I know. She was this wonderful old lady that had been on many of these over the years. And she said, FEMA's going to come through insurance and all the, and this community is going to be better than it ever was. And you know what? She was right. As, as awful, horrible, terrible of a time as that was, um, this community, Grand Forks and East Grand Forks, pulled together, and the downtown area was totally rejuvenated, um, and it, it did. It came back, in, and that's a lesson for all communities that go through these kinds of things. You can come back stronger than ever before. I wouldn't have thought it at the time. I thought she was, I thought she needed some psychological help, but, uh, <laughs> but she was absolutely right. And that's a tribute to your town too, to, yeah. to Grand Forks and its leaders. 
No, I'm glad to hear that. I heard the same kind of stories um, up and down the main, uh, uh, the drag, what we call it on, on the on the campus. So um, uh, it, it's interesting to always hear different people's perspective on how they experience that flood as well. So thank you for sharing. <laughs> Earlier, I talked about and referred to the disproportionate number of Native psychologists in the field. I haven't asked you yet, but why do you think um, there is such a disproportionate and, and what needs to be done in addition to these programs uh, and, and other colleges and universities that are focused on this? Why do you think there is such a disproportionate number? And what are some other things that we can do to help increase these numbers? That's the million-dollar question, isn't it, Brad? But but the reality is there's an answer. Uh, I didn't get a million dollars for answering it all these years, but but uh, I think our track record proves that it's true. And that is that the the institutional racism that has existed in academia and in the field of psychology, frankly, and narrowed down to clinical psych- psychology. When I say institutional racism, I mean oftentimes unintended. Uh, you can be a victim of your own success as a, pro- a training program in that you, 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 you select and train and graduate outstanding students and you make yourself very competitive to get into then, right? You know, because you only have so many faculty and so many faculty can, can there's a finite number of faculty that can work with a finite number of grad students you know you got to be on thesis committees and dissertation committees and mentor and advise and all of that so it limits the number of students that you can take well how do you do that well historically academia has increased the standards Right, increase the, the 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 quantitative standards for getting into training. Pro- you got to have a higher GPA, you got to have higher GRE scores to even get a sniff at getting into a program like this. Well, look at who that disadvantages: people of color, disabilities, maybe older students, non-traditional students. So it's it's not rocket science. Why? And it's not just American Indians, but it's certainly been disproportionately more American Indians that have not been um, uh, in, in, matriculated through the, into the field of psychology. Um, it's lots of folks in under underrepresented and underprivileged marginalized groups. American Indians up in our part of the country, in Indian country, as we call it, well, that's us. And we're talking about North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, Montana, Wyoming, our region, well, that's Indian country. And I know my friends, Southwest, don't, uh, Navajos and Apaches, don't, don't get, Pueblos, don't get mad at me. It's, it's all Indian country. We realize that. But for our region of India, our, our big part of Indian country. And um, until a cultural shift in departments and in training programs occurs, what do I mean by that? A cultural shift, cultures value everything differentially you know one culture may value this more than another one culture may discard what is extremely valuable in another culture well the culture of academia then has historically suggested that a good student or in other words one that is capable of getting into our program has these characteristics high gpa high gres and if that's your culture of value and acceptance, what do you get? 
you get white, middle to upper class, young people that have come from privileged uh, uh, schools and, and school systems that have had have had mentors have had folks along the way that totally support them and are they the cream of the crop absolutely they are but that cultural change now allows to folks to come in and reconsider that and and this notion of what is it well maybe a, a good graduate student doesn't have to be because there ain't that much difference between somebody that can can manage a 3.2 GPA and a 3.8. There, there's you're talking about smart people, you know. Come on, um, but if your cutoff is 3.5, you're never going to see those 3.2s that might be native, you know. So how about what they could bring to a program? Be a good student might mean that they bring a different worldview to your program, that they see things differently, that they can. Stir the pot a little bit in uh, keeping things fresh, or helping build allies, which we need. We need allies. You know. You know our inside programs. We realized from the very beginning, if, if we graduated all of those, you know, two Indian uh, PhDs a year, every year, every year, every year, in a hundred years, we'd still never have enough. Native uh, uh, psychologists for American Indians in this country. We still wouldn't have enough. So we, what do we need? We need allies. We need non-Native people that have cross-cultural competence and care enough to be an ally. Just like you are an ally for LGBTQ folks, just like elderly, disabled, be an ally. And if you can do that, and you can you can value that culturally in a training program that it's good. You're a good student is one that makes us think and makes us take a look at everything we do, curriculum, admissions, research, all of that. Rethink everything that we do. That's 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 what we think a good student is. Doesn't have to just be the high quant uh, uh, criteria. That's the cultural change that if training programs really do not just lip service BS to, to maintain accreditation huh, from APA, which I told you is the lifeblood. It's everything. Um, and so we, we brought in a medicine man or we, we had a workshop. No, take a look at what bringing in people with a different worldview that can stimulate and maintain a different way to run your academic railroad. That's what it takes. Yeah, very good points. I agree with you. An ally, even when I reached out to you, I said, we are looking to be an ally. And uh, I showed some of my ignorance when I, I, my eyes were opened when I started looking at all of these different programs uh, that were available. I didn't even think about the need for those programs. And unfortunately, it would be nice to get to the point where everybody just treated everybody the same and they looked at that but uh unfortunately that's not the case the other th two things that i'd like to add uh doug is that number one in order to help um, alleviate that disproportionate number you also have to get the information to those people 
letting them know that these programs are available. Some of them aren't even aware that some of these things are available. So that's number one. Number two is you can um, provide more interest into the psychology field by talking more about the psychology field with people. If they've never talked about it or talked to an advisor or talked to anybody else in the field, how are they even supposed to know, A, that it exists, and B, how are they supposed to know, hey, this is really interesting, or they figure out, I find it really interesting. So I, I think those are fair, you know, uh, another two things to, to think about. So if you're in the field, I would urge you talk about it with your friends and family, with colleagues, because you might eventually reach somebody who, oh my gosh, I never thought about going that direction. And then they might, you might bring in more people uh, and, and uh, Im- improve the interest in the field as well. Wouldn't you think? Absolutely. And, and, to, to, to kind of uh, flesh that out, Brad, if you're, if you're hearing this and you think that wherever you may live, I don't care if you're downtown Minneapolis, New York City, or, or anywhere in the United States of America and lots of other parts of the country, of the world, but if, if you are anywhere standing on Mother Earth, Grandmother Earth, and you look down and there's dirt under your feet at all, you are standing on native land in, in that maybe in the last 100, 150 years, the, the native people have been driven out of there. But for whatever you want to believe, 10,000, 15, 20,000 years, and a lot of our tribes believe that we've always been here. But even if you just want to go by the science and the archaeological record, for as long as potentially 20,000 years, every bit of dirt that you're standing on in this country is Indian land, or it was Indian land and native land. And all of those thousands of years of, of spirits and the animal spirits and all of those ancestors tied to that land are still there. And so you are on, you are standing on, and you live on, and you eat, and you love, and you work on Indian land. So I don't say that to make anybody feel guilty at all. That's not my point. My point is, once people internalize that and realize that, it's kind of cool, because they realize, oh, well, I didn't realize that. In the middle of New York City, Des Moines, Iowa, well, what does that mean then? What's the history of that? Don't just take it from Doug McDonald. Uh, what tribes were here before? What did they do? Who were they? What did they do? What did they build? What did, what kinds of legacies did they leave us? Not, not just a visitor center in, in, a, in a, a, a state park somewhere. You know, that's cool. That's always good. But, but the, the, the deeper spiritual meaning and, and respect the fact that there are thousands of years of ancestors of native people on every, every square foot of American dirt that you stand on. So it is relevant to you, it, even if that's all it is. It's kind of cool. It is actually, I mean, I'm just listening to you and I'm thinking about that. I haven't thought about it that way as well. I've traveled a lot uh, within the United States and outside of the United States. And it makes me even wonder outside of this country, uh, native lands and how they have changed hands and how they have uh, evolved throughout the years as well. So even outside of the United States. 
Earlier, earlier, I asked you a question about, hey, advice that you have for those, anybody uh, interested in becoming a psychologist or getting into the psychology field. I'm going to challenge you a little bit more by saying, okay, what advice would you give to Native Americans who are interested in the field of psychology or becoming a psychologist? So everything that you said earlier also applies, but what else would you also uh, provide for advice for the Native Americans? Indianize it. Sure. Um, and that, that, that's really the heart of the matter, isn't it, uh, when it comes down to it? To, to those students out there at whatever level, uh, whether even if you're still in grade school or high school or undergrad, if you don't seek out mentors, just like you have in your tribe, and you know what I'm talking about, people in your tribe, the medicine, people of the medicine community, the elders, the societies, the clans, the Teoshpaye, the the family groups, um, you know you know who I'm talking about in your community. If you don't find in the academic community, so so uh, a, a psychology department or a training program, if there's no, if that's where you want to, first of all, you need to take that into account. That if there's nobody there that can support that under either is an ally or let alone an American Indian faculty member, which they're few and far between, but they many times they are there. Find them in the university. Seek them out. Every university and college has a you know an Indian club or an American Indian student association. Find out about that. Find your support, your your spiritual support, uh, your your cultural support. Find your place of welcomeness within an academic community at every level, the university, the department, the the training program that that you're thinking about going to, right? Find your source of support. That source of support may be like it was for me, a mentor that got it, that knew how to foster an American Indian graduate student. Find that source of support. Otherwise, and, and, and even if that source of support is not there locally, that's still not the not the end of the world by any means. You're going to feel very alone, but you're not. There are larger organizations, like I mentioned earlier, SIP, the Society of Indian Psychologists. We we have a mentorship program that you can check into. If you go to the the the, the SIP website, we have a mentorship program where Mentors like me and so many other outstanding American Indian psychologists out there that we've been through it. We know what you're going to see. We know what you're going to deal with. And we're, we're there to help you and advise you, even if we never even meet you personally. Uh, this, this cool Zoom thing helps a lot, <laughs> you know, when it comes to mentoring. I've definitely found that out. But getting to SIP is there for you. And, and that's just one example on a national and uh, 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 setting of what the resources are there that are available to, but you got to reach out and find them. Don't just plop yourself down at university X, Y, or Z and uh, expect that there's going to be those resources there. They may very well be, but you got to find them. My suggestion is find them before. So you know that you're going to a place hint, hint, like UND, shameless plug, uh, recruitment plug, where where we do have a safe place to be. And we do have programs, let alone um, uh, student associations. But make sure that where you are going, there are sources of support. And even if there aren't, look around you. 
even at the national level, uh, we all seem to leave, live in the internet or or on these damn things. You, you can fi- we're there. Find us. You don't have to be my student to get in touch with me. You know, I'm here to, to help as many interested students that, that I possibly can. And we'll, we can network and we can help you and support you. Uh, take it from me, going in alone like I did 35 years ago sucks. And there's a lot of excuses that come up that make you want to quit. Luckily, I found the Society of Indian Psychologists and lots of other Native graduate students that went on to become family, absolute family. So we're there. There's folks out there that will support you and help you. But but you got to find us. We can't find you. Very good advice. I like that. And I, I get the sense even before uh, um, this interview that if somebody reached out to you, if, if this reached, you know, a handful of people that were interested and they didn't know where to start, I have a feeling that if they reached out to you, uh, sent you an email, you'd be all over that. So that's that's what I'm here for. Absolutely. That that dream that started when I was in grad school of what could be, I, Brad. I don't ha, I don't even feel like I have a job. I tell this to my students all the time. This is my life. You know, it's my way of life. And uh, everybody that knows me knows that that's the case. And I, you, you, uh, sure, you don't have the kind of success that you do without that kind of the, and that level of commitment. I think about my brother, uh, John, Doctor John Cheney, down at Oklahoma State, and our our sister Gita Sweeney at the University of Montana who's passed on had that same drive and we've been there since the beginning and that's what we're here for. Well I I, I must say I appreciate that and I like hearing that. Uh, I wish all uh, faculty staff had that drive and and that motivation. <laughs> I'm not saying that some don't. I'm just saying it would be, what a wonderful world it would be if 100 uh, percent of of people had that drive. I might add one other thing. You were talking about support. You were talking about uh, emotional, uh, institutional, academic support. I'd also say uh, proactively search for some of the uh, financial support uh, that could be out there. Any grants, any uh, internships, anything like that. Any other thoughts regarding that? That, yeah, Brad. Wow, that that has exploded so much with with the advent of the of the internet. It, back in the day, uh, you know, everything was paper and telephone, and you'd hear about some scholarship from a foundation or a university or something like that somewhere, or a company, the Ford Fellowship. It, you'd hear about them. Every once in a while, you might get a flyer in the mail at, in the department, <clears throat> and you could follow up on it. But now. It's all at our fingertips, right? We can research. We can Google, use the Google and, and find all of that stuff. And there's never been more financial support for American Indian students as there is now. There's the Cobell Scholarship. There just There's more foundations and groups out there that provide uh, grants and scholarships for every level of academic training, including graduate school, which is awesome. Um I've got one of my grad students that has been extremely aggressive about going, and she hasn't had to take out any loans in grad school because she found so much support. I'm glad that she's going off on internship because I'm kind of getting tired of writing letters of recommendation for her. But uh, <laughs> but but no, that, I tease her about that all the time. But and most of it's is a scholarship. You don't have to pay back scholarships. Grants usually or fellowships you, you might, but uh, uh, APA has a minority fellowship program. 
I was I was an MFP, and some of the most absolutely outstanding ethnic minority psychologists in the country were former MFPs, the Minority Fellowship Program. So definitely hit up APA uh, at APA.org and, and go to the MFP program. It is a great source. Your own tribes. Now, it, it, it shocks me when I find Native students that don't even know that oftentimes their own tribes offer scholarships. And so that's another resource as well. Great advice. Great advice. I'm going to leave no stone unturned. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm going to pivot real quick here. And I can tell that you're all about helping others uh, and and more focused on uh, the Native Americans and and any of the programs and any resources that you can bring to the forefront to help them. I'm going to pivot again and kind of I did notice that you have your own uh, therapy and consulting uh, business as well. So you're a, you're a licensed psychologist, as I mentioned before, and you have a private practice in North Dakota. Tell us a little bit more about Hawk Vision and how that started and, and what your goal is there. And I'm going to bring that up and share that on the screen while you do that. Sure. Uh, when I came back from my military experience, um, my adopted Northern Cheyenne parents uh, gave me my adult name and my uh, veteran name of uh, Spotted Hawk. Spotted Hawk was a Northern Cheyenne warrior that fought at the Battle of Little Bighorn. And I've always been very proud of that name, Spotted Hawk. And then back in uh, back in 1988, or I'm sorry, 98 was kind of going through a tough time in my life and went on an EP or vision quest to Bear Butte, South Dakota. And uh, uh, I, the, 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 uh, the, the big result of that vision was to, to continue to help people through the vision of the hawk. And so this name of Hawk Vision came to me in that vision. And so I named my company Hawk Vision and uh, it, 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 there's a couple different aspects. Uh, there's the equine assisted aspect. The horse has always been very important to Plains tribes for sure for hundreds and hundreds of years as, as not only a, uh, a partner in, especially the nomadic tribes moving across the country, um, but also as a, as a spiritual relative. Uh, Tashunka, the the spirit dog, as the Lakota call it, and so we've always revered horses. And it's not just native people, but uh, Igala and uh, other HIPAA uh, kinds of, of therapeutic programs around the world and across the country have recognized that that horses heal. Horses. One th- one cool thing. Research has found that if you come up to a horse or a horse comes up to you, that horse can sense your heartbeat and it can match its heartbeat to your heartbeat. And that that's empirically demonstrated. So <clears throat> I, I do equine assisted psychotherapy with folks, uh, offer kind of a native aspect if they wish or traditional CBT is fine. And then uh, recently since the pandemic, I've started a new aspect of that of the business, the Native Clinical Associates aspect of my Hawk Vision business, where I'm bringing in former graduates of our program to do part-time telehealth and teletherapy because 
many in the field, myself included, prior to the pandemic, kind of poo-pooed teletherapy and telehealth because, well, it, it it's not real therapy. You know, there, you're not in a clinic, you're not in a, a an office, and you know, you can. What are you going to do it on your phone? Yeah. You could. They're not just phones anymore in case nobody noticed. They're pretty powerful. And um, so, and then with the pandemic, they're started getting reimbursements, not only reimbursements, but the full rate oftentimes, Medicare, Medicaid, private insurance for teletherapy and you, allowing folks to do it in their own home. So we've started offering that service as well to tribes and to uh, uh, tribal entities of doing telehealth around around the country to different tribes and organizations as well. So that's been, you know, again, if there's can be any positive byproducts of this horrible pandemic, maybe a cultural change for psychology too, to understand that, especially in rural America, you, you know, I, I've Brad, I've killed four vehicles in trying to do private practice and consulting uh, around. I've worked with over 22 different tribes around the United States. I, I've brand new, brand new vehicles, ran them to death. They're Lord knows where they are driving and driving and driving and driving. And, now we don't have to do that. We can do this, and so that's been that's been really challenging because it's a whole new, bold, new adventure and field and aspect of our field, telehealth and teletherapy. But but uh, we're learning more as we go, and so we offer that too. Well, thank you for that. that that's summary. the next chapter. That that's yeah. you know because I'm not going to be here at UND forever, but uh, <laughs> uh, that I want to kind of slowly transition to to doing that. Right. For the, the next chapter. <laughs> right. Well, I'm sure you're going to do well at that. It's my understanding that you mentioned the equine assisted psychotherapy falls under the main umbrella of ecotherapy. Is that is that correct? Right. It, and uh, ecotherapy is a very um, uh, expanding area in our field that, that includes. Well, it, first of all, it recognizes the outdoors as being therapeutic. And, you know, any of us that, that are outdoors people know that. We, if you live, I, you know, one thing that I know is really cool about Minneapolis is all the parks and around the lakes and stuff that it, sometimes you wouldn't even realize you're in the middle of a major U.S. city in in uh, the Minneapolis-St. Paul area there. And how good you feel. Just walking your dog, or being out, or or running a five k, or just hiking—how uh, good that feels! It helps. It, we call it therapeutic, don't we? <laughs> you know, it's horticulture. It's growing plants. It's it, even hunting and fishing and conservation. Being in the outdoors, being on a boat on the water with good people, is therapeutic. So how do you take that and harness that? And maybe for folks that aren't used to that or haven't recognized how therapeutic that can be, how about people who've never seen a horse, never touched a horse, and I can take them and and say, this is Dr. Dolly or Dr. Thunder or, or horses right. that do it. <laughs> and uh, they, they can touch a horse and feel that connection. It feels good and they feel better. So Ecotherapy, uh, that, that is the umbrella term for all of that, hiking and, and horticulture, and all, 
uh, equine assisted therapy, all of that. Dogs and cats, for crying out loud. Look at you can't go into a store nowadays without an emotional support animal. I don't know what I really think about all that, but at the root, it's that those animals help decrease anxiety, help people feel more able and capable in their lives. And so for that aspect of it, I I I'm I think resonates to ecotherapy as well. Okay, I also, a, oh, go ahead. I did a, uh, my wife and I did a, uh, every Friday here at UND in the afternoon, we, we run a program for all of the clinical students. And we talk about different kinds of therapy and different things in the field. And our clinical training director asked me to come in and talk about ecotherapy. And so I came in and had it all staged, of course, and started talking about ecotherapy and my wife was over at the door and, uh, watching, and I kind of gave her the high sign. She brings in two kittens, or kind of older kittens. All of those students that are kind of sitting there going, oh, yeah, yeah, this is really interesting. All of a sudden, just by having two kittens in the room, it changed everything. You know, so animals are powerful, and the outdoors is powerful, too. And you don't have to go to an ecotherapist to realize that. Get outside. <laughs> right. I was going to add that uh, there. I know there are a number of people out there that not only believe in the ecotherapy, but they also believe that it, it is a different experience if you can take off your shoes and socks and actually feel the earth. And there's a lot of studies out there that uh, some people actually uh, respond to the earth and, and change their heartbeat, blood pressure, all of that stuff. And so I found that very interesting when I read that. It sure can. Uh, we, uh, we, we use the term in Lakota, Unchimaka, grandmother earth. And so do so many, not just, not just the Lakota people and tribes, but so many. You know, we always sit here, mother earth, grandmother earth. Well, there's a reason <laughs> that we use that we we don't say the earth my pal or, or the buddy we refer to the earth as our mother and as our grandmother and when you get that kind of a vibe and that kind of a feeling you know why mm -hmm. um here's a challenging question and it's going to be difficult based on our discussion uh you're a professor licensed psychologist inside director and all this passion that you have for helping students and and anybody for that matter getting into the field and and uh academics in general as well what do you love most about any of your jobs oh that's actually pretty easy um uh my students my students, yeah, there, there, there's no question that they, you know, I'm going to be 60 years old here, like I said, in, in another month, and I realize I'm coming to, to the end of my journey in doing all of this, but I've been thinking that way for about 10 years, you know, and uh, uh, right about the time I get to thinking, well, maybe it's time to head back to Montana, we get another cohort of grad students in that just completely revitalizes me. And brings me back to what I started doing all this in, in the first place. And that's in the here and now. Um, but my former students that are now psychologists, they're, they're program directors, they're, they're out there and they're doing they're, everything that, and more that we hoped and dreamed that they would. There's no better feeling in the world than knowing that you were a small part of that. So it's definitely my students. They, they, I they, Keep me as young as I can possibly feel. 
I agree with you. Uh, when I was teaching, I loved seeing the change in my students. And what even um, motivated me more was seeing those students years after. And then they recall, you know, I took your class, Brad, and one thing that really stood out to me was whatever. And right. I, I utilize that. So I, I see that passion in you and I, I can empathize with that uh, passion as well. What are you, other than the, uh, um, your licensed uh, psychology and using your license in your um, private practice, what are some other plans and goals for you in the future? <laughs> I, like I said, I'm a very passionate uh Hunter and I, I, I always hesitate when I tell people that because th there's so many negative stereotypes about hunters. A lot of folks don't understand that hunters are predominantly, for the most part, conservationists. And without hunters, you don't have conservation because our fees for hunting and fishing licenses are what fund you like your, you know, your your state parks, your county parks, and a lot of that comes from the, the uh, hunter, hunter and fisher person dollars. Um, but but that aspect of it, I I greatly enjoy. For example, uh, I was lucky enough to draw in North Dakota. Here, North Dakota offers a elk, uh, moose, and a bighorn sheep tag that you can apply for. You only get one in your whole life. And lucky, I was lucky enough to get a moose tag last year and got my moose. Well, I got an elk tag this year. Didn't get my elk. But you know what? Went out to around Medora. And if you haven't, folks haven't been there, go to Medora. It's fantastic. Um, I got to go out into the Badlands in North Dakota from the after uh, Labor Day all the way to the 31st of December to <laughs> hunt my elk. I saw a new country, you know, that I hadn't really seen. I had, didn't have an appreciation for Teddy Roosevelt Park like I, I do now. I went out there about eight times. My 86-year-old year old father got to spend time with him looking around trying to find an elk. We saw a few elk, but we saw so much more. And it's the, the beauty and the awe of being in new beautiful country. We saw a lot of eagles and a couple badgers and every other kind of animal except an elk <laughs> or, or a cow elk that wasn't in the park anyway. But what a fantastic experience that was. And I've had to give up a lot of that over the years, quite honestly. Um, being free on the weekends to go fishing or hunting doesn't always work out. You know, you always hear you should have been here yesterday. Well, yesterday was Friday, and I had to work. You know, we'd have stuff to do on, on Friday, so I couldn't be here. Get there Saturday, and it's a mess. Uh, so I look forward to being able to just see more of the world, meet more people that, that even my APA experience in governance of APA, of uh, SIP, the Society of Indian Psychologists, I've met tons and tons of incredible people. But there's still so many fantastic people out there to meet. I look forward to that. I want to see some new country. And uh, I'll always keep my hand in doing this and, you know, my private practice ultimately helping people um, and finding new ways to help people and not just Native people, but it, but anybody. So that's what I see sort of 2.0 2 or 1B being for me next. 
Sounds like great options. I, I, I agree with all of that as well. That, that would be a, a wonderful uh, next stage, next uh, uh, phase of your life. If you've seen some of the um, uh, podcasts or heard some of the podcasts, you know that I usually end up the uh, podcast with a few kind of fun questions. And so I always ask this and I kind of accumulate everybody's perspective on these questions. So I have a few left for you. What is your favorite term, principle, or theory and why? Probably one of the foundation, you know, old sayings become old sayings and they persist for good reason because they're usually true or, or have wisdom in them that were developed by the elders. Uh, they get passed on and passed on. And one old saying that has really been the foundation of that I've tried to live my, my life by, two of them really. One is, of course, the golden rule treat people like you want to be treated. You know, that's, that's, but also a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. <clears throat> you know, it, it, if you got big cast iron links, but you only have one link in there, that's not, it's just, you know, 10 gauge wire. You don't have a chain. It's going to rip apart. And that's true of every aspect of our lives. It's true of relationships, isn't it? You know, that a, ch a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And if you internalize that and live your life always trying to strengthen your weakest links, then dang it, you got some pretty strong chains. I like it. I like it. What is something new that you have learned recently? <laughs> oh, matter of fact, I just learned this this morning. <laughs> I was on Facebook and one of my colleagues posted on there. Of course, if it's on Facebook and if it's on the internet, it's true, right? So, so this is clearly true, folks. <laughs> um, instead of throwing out, if if you cook with with lard or or uh, 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 vegetable oil, don't just throw out your grease. Put rolled oats or, or uh, oats in there and mix that all up. And put that outside for the birds or for the squirrels because they eat it. Apparently, you don't want to use bacon because of the animal fat. But if it's plant-based or, or, or lard, for some reason, works out okay. I think it's how much they clean it, that there's no uh, fleshy particles in it. But uh, roll some oats in there and put it out for the birds, and, and especially during the wintertime. And then they can have something to eat. And then you're not just clogging up your uh, <laughs> your sink pipes. Or throwing it outside like we do. <laughs> right. No, that's interesting. That's good advice. That's a good That's suggestion. the best I got, Brett. <laughs> <laughs> I have two more questions. If you had time and money to complete one project or go on one trip, what would you do? I've always thought if I if I really ever hit the lottery, you know, and uh what would I what would I do if I could and it, it's always been to build a, a brick and mortar place kind of centrally loca located that I could bring together all of the, the best people I've ever worked with my former students and, and others uh, across all the different tribes that I consulted and am a part of. And we would have a huge behavioral health center and have a foundation, <clears throat> you know, and we could just help 
natives and non-natives and have it have a, a substance abuse aspect, uh, uh, parenting training, mental health, all of that. And uh, everybody would there be enough money that everybody was comfortable so they were motivated to to work and work hard and we could just help as many people as possible that's that's always been my dream I, i'm hoping that it, uh, i can kind of touch on that with the telehealth thing moving forward so we don't have to have brick and mortar and we don't have to burn up gas driving around but uh that's that's what i would do if i could do that what trip would i make um Boy, I was, I'm lucky in that, uh, in my military experience, I got to see a lot of the world, but it was all uh, Hawaii and uh, uh, different aspects of uh, different uh, countries of Asia. I've never been to Europe, and I'd love to go back. Um, Irish McDonald, obviously, and then, again, the German side of my mom's family. I'd love to go maybe visit those countries in, in Europe and maybe identify and find some relatives, you know, and uh, see what their life has been like since their family came over and established my family and uh, love to go to Europe. It seems like everybody else, but me has <laughs> good. Yeah. Good, good plans. I, I like both of them. Actually Europe. I I've been there a few times. Love it. I, I believe you'd love it as well. Is there anything else that you would like to discuss or bring up in this podcast? Honestly, for students out there, native and non-native, but but certainly for the native students, if you really want to do this, first of all, it's amazing because, uh, like you said, Brad, there's so few American Indian psychologists. It, it is a pretty exclusive uh, 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 society to be a part of. It's and humbling and honored to be a part of you can do it you can do it if this knucklehead can do it uh you can do it also i didn't even have math in the only math i had in high school i sat across from my cousin and uh we the teacher had us for our homework exchange papers with the person across from me and we cheated for each other i had no i had no idea how to do algebra by the time i got to college okay that's not that's if you were better off than that at least in terms of math and we had no science give me a break um you can do it but it has to come from your heart it has to come from your spirit and you got to believe in yourself and uh you can do it it's a huge commitment it's the biggest commitment that you can ever make in your life next to your kids and, and uh, your spouse, perhaps. But if you have that dream, and you know you do, uh, you hear even hearing my words, I, you know you do. You can do it. You can. So get after it and get it done. Join us. Great message to end off this podcast. Doug, I really appreciate your time and willingness to share your thoughts and experiences. Uh, I enjoyed hearing about your stories and, and we'll definitely give some uh, um, kudos to you and UND and the, and the program uh, on our uh, website and, and after this podcast goes live. Again, I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule on Friday here. I love, I mentioned to you before we started, I, I love the background. I love seeing everything, uh, <laughs> e even the shirt, even though you might have worn it on that uh, <laughs> uh, other interview as well or that article. Uh, 
I, I really appreciate you. you. You have a good aura about you, and, and I uh, firmly believe that you're all in it for, for the students and anybody else who uh, is interested, as we are on our website. So I appreciate that. That was a good fit for us. Um, I want you to have a good rest of the day, and I wish you luck. We'll, we'll keep in touch in the future. Palamialo. Thank you, Brad. Thank you. Bye-bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.